या देवी सर्वभूतेषु मातृरूपेण संस्थिता नमस्तस्य 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 नमो नमः I bow to that one mother in all of you. Today I would like to read from two books. One of them is Conversations with Yogananda, and the other is a book that was a rewrite of mine. It's in his words, but my words. I, how to explain it? I rewrote his words because they were not written by him, but ghostwritten, and I've tried to do a better job. I, I, I would like you to read it. Let me begin with this book. Because it's uh, the subject is the same on both of these, he says in a cinema love story, the hero and the heroine undergo many tribulations. At last, they marry to euphoric music. Loved ones smile at them and wish them every happiness. The couple gaze fondly into each other's eyes. Joyfully, there flash on the screen the words, "The end." And the audience goes home reassured that here were two at least who lived happily ever after. The director was clever. He ended the movie at that point. No mourning after, no rolling pins and black eyes. Of course, by no means all weddings end sadly. Enough of them are followed by happy honeymoons and a life of reasonable contentment to keep the myth of conjugal bliss alive. All the same, even happy marriages conceal a certain sadness. The recognition of what a colossal compromise human love is, compared to the soul's longing for perfect love, human happiness seldom exposes, even to the persons concerned, its hidden disappointments. People usually close out such thoughts, for life's rhythms are long enough to cloud the memory of past sorrows. Always, people hope that somehow things will turn out all right. Thus, the matron whose marriage has been a lifelong disappointment can hardly wait to get the young ladies in her social set married off, not because she wants to inflict misery on them, but because she persuades herself that her own days of humdrum resignation will be different this time, and so the myth lives on. Human happiness is a ripple on the river of time. The little child with shining eyes, sweet laughter, and gentle smile, may become in middle age a rapacious tycoon. The beautiful maiden with rosy complexion, radiant gaze, and melting looks, seems the very essence of loveliness. Can that older woman, a few years later, sallow-skinned, dull-eyed, Scowling perpetually, her face deeply lined with disillusionment, really be the same human being. The soft sweetness of youth has hardened into cynicism. Which of these two is the real one? The answer is neither of them. Change blows over a person's life like a breeze over the surface of a pond. It ruffles the surface of his ego with ripples of pleasure and displeasure, but ever briefly, nothing lasts. If people die happy, they go dancing off the stage, too happy or envious applause, change their costumes, 
and re-emerge in other roles, whether happy or sad, depending on how well they have acted so far. Nothing ever defines them as they really are. In time, the monotonous repetition causes unspeakable anguish. For one remembers his lost bliss and cannot but compare his present state to one that might be. And such is life. I'd like to read also from Conversations with Yogananda. The master was commenting to the monks on the high divorce rate in America. Too many people marry for the wrong reasons, sex and physical beauty usually. I sometimes think of it as a union between an elegant bow tie and a nice shade of lipstick. In India, there are many more happy marriages. Marriage there is arranged by the parents, whose first concern is for their children's happiness. The hypnosis of adolescent infatuation isn't a factor. It is different, of course, when parents want to marry their children off for mercenary reasons, such as the bride's dowry. Money is as much a hypnosis as sex. However, the parents are sincerely if, however, the parents are sincerely interested in their children's happiness, there is a greater likelihood that the marriage will be a success. Physical attraction is both superficial and fleeting. Marriage in America today is a gamble, like going to Las Vegas or playing the stock market. In India, there are many Romeo and Juliet marriages. The master paused, then added wryly, In a way, the system here is better. At least they find out more quickly. <coughs> it would be good to understand that the purpose of life is not happiness in this world. Any happiness that we get is a part of the ripples of the waves of the ocean, just up and down, up and down. For every up, there has to be a down. And the higher the up, the lower the down. A real, a man of real wisdom, a saint, let us say, is one whose wave is close to the ocean bosom. Because his happiness is not dependent, not dependent on rising and falling emotions, excitement, involvement in the world. His happiness comes from within. You know, an interesting thing, I'm just going to touch on this briefly, I'll come to it later again. But the three qualities of rajas, tamas, and sattva are contained in the wave. The peak of the wave is the tamasic quality pushing as far away from spirit as possible. The middle is the rajasic quality and the sattvic is the low quality. The high waves are the big egos, people who want to uh, make a big splash in this world and be important and looked up to and have fame and name and all those things which in the end are so useless. I often wonder, does somebody like Mozart or um, Aurangzeb or any of the great figures of the past, does he know what he did in this life? Doubtful. You go on, their memory lasts, but how much of that memory do you have? It depends on your awareness. And so when somebody asked my guru, what is the difference between you and your disciples? 
He said, all are waves on the same ocean, and you think, well, that means that the guru is a bigger wave. No, the guru is the lowest wave. It's the ego who is the big wave. But he said that even in the lowest wave, because to have any manifestation at all, there have to be the three gunas. And so in the lowest wave, there is the, the peak of that little, little tiny bulge in the ocean is the tamasic part. The middle part is rajasic, and the sattvic is that part which is closest to the ocean. But even a saint has his three, the three gunas. He couldn't exist if he didn't. But the tamasic guna in a saint is perhaps a desire to rest every now and then, or perhaps a desire to sleep. It's not tamoguna, as most people understand it. And in a, in a tamasic person, the sattvic part is there, but it's so hidden by his, his uh, rajasic desires and even more his tamasic tendencies of laziness and greed and so on, that you don't see that. In a tall wave, you don't see that part of the ocean which is close to the bosom. But all are, all are waves on the same ocean. All are a part of the same reality. And our job is not to push our wave higher and higher and higher. Mind you, this does not mean, therefore, don't act. The Gita says it beautifully when Krishna said to Arjuna, you have to fight. We have to do our duty in life. And so if your duty is from your inner impulse, I know creative people, it would take just as much ego, if not more, to suppress that volcano of creativity as it would to let it spew. You have to be true to your own dharma. You have to be true to your own destiny. And so if it is your destiny to be famous and so on, let it be. But don't be attached to it. Don't think that you are the one who is famous. You are just acting the part that God has given you. And act it like a good actor. Act it on his behalf. And don't take it as your own self-importance. So it is. Just a moment. I need to clear this throat here. And so it is that we need in our worldly involvements, which include job, which include marriage, which include raising children, which include all the things that everybody is involved in in one way or another. You couldn't be. Even the saint with his little bulger is still involved in the world unless he chooses to withdraw back into that watchful state of the spirit beyond all vibration. But as long as you are manifesting and playing this game of life, and there's nothing wrong in being involved outwardly as long as inwardly, and this is the difference between a worldly person and a saint, between the disciples and a great master, is that you have this inner freedom and you know that God is playing through you. Like that thing I told you about very recently of the time we were helping our guru into his car, and he smiled so sweetly and he said, you are so kind to me with your many attentions. Oh, my goodness, what he was doing for us was so much more. So we naturally said, it's you who are kind to us, sir. And he very sweetly said, God is helping God. That's the nature of his drama. We need to see that. And the role in that way of the disciple is as important as that of the guru. And sometimes the disciples become greater. And sometimes 
They have a long way to go, but the goal of it all is finally union with God. That's why my guru, in his greatness, never accepted that he was the guru. He always said, God is the guru. The goal of sadhana, the goal of spiritual uh, practice, is to eliminate that consciousness of I. Now, marriage increases it as a rule. It's like what I was saying the other day when you do square dancing in the West. The farther a couple, when they're spinning, the farther they spin away from each other, the more they can, the faster they can go. And in the beginning, there's that sense of the difference, male and female and romance and all those things. Gradually, they come together and each begins to see himself and the other, and each begins to take on the qualities of the other. The goal of marriage is to bring that balance, you know, like a tine, a, the tines of a tuning fork that vibrate like this. As it slows down, it gradually becomes one at rest in the center. This is the goal of all human endeavor. Marriage is just one part of human activity, but all the waves, all the excitement, all the ambitions, all these things that we seek in this world, we should do them for God. It isn't that he doesn't want us to act. The Gita says you can't achieve freedom by not acting because even not acting you act until you have gone beyond action. Even the mind will act. You can't stop that mind. But you can control it and you can direct it. And so bit by bit, as you can bring that, the tines of that fork to a single point, if you can bring those waves to a single level, then you find that you become centered in yourself. This is the goal of yoga. This is what Kriya Yoga is. This is why when my great Guruji came to the West, he brought not only the science of Kriya Yoga, but the path of Kriya Yoga. What this meant was that, you see, with Kriya Yoga, you become centered in the spine. You learn to bring your life force and your reactions into the spine. In fact, it's a very good practice. Whenever you enjoy anything in this world, always take it back to yourself. Say, it's inside that I'm enjoying this. The joy that I think I'm getting in these things is really in my own self. It's an idea in your mind that you are satisfying, and so here your pleasure comes. But the, the more you understand and can discriminate that your happiness is inside, the more you find that energy, instead of going outward, goes inward. So the path of Kriya Yoga as opposed just to the practice of Kriya Yoga, which helps you in this path, is to remember to bring that energy back to a center in yourself, and then to direct that energy upward and focus it at the point between the eyebrows. Now, the wonderful thing about this is, and this again is something that my great guru helped us to understand, because you see, we usually see the world and God as two separate things. We see our worldly responsibility and worldly fulfillments and satisfactions in one camp and our spiritual practices in the other. He helped us to see that it's really all one. We want to bring these two together to the point where we understand that uh, when we uh, enjoy in the world, it's really with God's joy that we are enjoying. The more we can enjoy from inside outward, which is what the practice of Kriya Yoga helps you to do,
the more, and this is the point that I wanted to bring up, the more you can do well, whatever you're doing, it's not as if, well, you become inefficient or incompetent. It's not like that delightful story of Tukaram, who began his life as a bookkeeper. I don't mean he began his life in a crib. I mean when he was growing up, obviously. But uh, he, he spent his time writing in the ledger. Instead of figures, he would write poetry to God. Well, that was beautiful. But you know, it's also very beautiful to know that you can do a good job in the world to satisfy worldly needs and not lose your joy. You know, when I was in college, I had, it was my weakness, but I didn't, I was so against money. I just didn't want money. And I would even make it a point not to sit with people who were majoring in business in college. And yet I discovered that my guru's most advanced disciple was a self-made millionaire. Self-made meaning he began from nothing and yet became a very successful man. And in his work, he was completely focused. And yet in that focus, because he meditated, sometimes people would say, well, why do you spend so much time before you come to the office? Well, what he did, of course, and he didn't tell everybody this, he spent his time in meditation, in Kriya Yoga, in, in Sadhana. Then he came to work, and he was much more focused when he worked. And all he said to them was, well, because of my responsibilities, I can't afford not to take this time to myself. He didn't explain more, except to those who were ready. But remember, God is your deepest friend. God is your true beloved. God is your companion. When you live with him, you don't have fear. And when you live without him, there's fear in everything. Though green summer fade, and winter draw near my Lord in your presence, I live without fear. That's the name of this song, I Live Without Fear. Joy to you and God bless you. Though green summer fade and winter draw near, my Lord in your presence, I Yeah.